0: Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefandini.
1: So I want to start by putting up a picture of two dinner plates. Turn to somebody around you and answer that question. How are they alike? How are they different? All right, um, we, we, will, we will come back to that question later in the message, and it, believe it or not, it does have something to do with John 17. Our passage today is John 17, I invite your attention there. We're in a series at Harvest where we're looking at the prayers of Jesus, um, six different prayers that he actually prayed and we're trying to learn how that helps us pray. Today, we come to John 17. We So far, we've learned that prayer is surrender to God's will. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And then last week, we looked at a passage where he's walking along and ministering, and then just in the middle of regular life, gives thanks, naturally. Today... We're going to learn that prayer involves praying for others, and we'll learn that Jesus prayed for us in our mission, and we'll find out what that gives us today. So, here's the context of John 17. As the cross approached and Jesus was about to depart earth, he instructed his disciples about how they could thrive in their mission after he was gone. And he prayed for them and all the future disciples as well. Now, we really need to understand this passage in its larger context to really grasp it. It's right and true. I've read this many, many times and and thought, wow, it's wonderful that Jesus is is praying for things like unity and spiritual protection and, and those things that we will see but the context helps us understand why he did that and how we can properly apply it to our lives. Jesus had been with these men for three years. He was about to leave them, to die, to be buried, to rise again, go to heaven, back, ascend back to heaven, and now they would be without him. They wouldn't have him around anymore they wouldn't have him to ask questions they wouldn't have him to watch they wouldn't have him to bring comfort to them how are they going to how are they going to survive how are they going to minister and so we have this larger section in the gospel of john from john 14 to 17 that is the often known as the upper room discourse and what's happening there is Jesus is preparing these first followers for how they're going to thrive and survive after he's gone. He, he starts out by telling them that their hearts shouldn't be troubled in John 14, but but that because he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven. And then he promises to send another comforter to them, the Holy Spirit, that who will indwell them and empower them. And he urged them in chapter 15 to be closely connected to him like like the vine and branches. He warned them that the world was going to oppose them, just like they opposed him. And yet, he also told them in chapter 16 that there's going to be a time when they're going to be scattered, and it's going to seem like Jesus is alone, but he assures them, I, I'm never alone because the Father is always with me, and I am victorious. And after all of these three chapters, of all of this instruction about what to do when I'm gone, Jesus does something that's very, very important and very instructive. He prays for them. <laughs> he prays for them. John 17 is the l- longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. And that's what we're going to dive in today. What You know what we call the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> Our Father art in heaven, hallowed maybe really sh- should be called the disciples' prayer, and maybe this should be called the Lord's Prayer. In this chapter, Jesus prayed for himself, he prayed for his present disciples, and then he prayed for the future disciples, which includes us. Now, let's just read. We're not going to focus a lot on the first five verses or at all. I'm just going to read it and make a couple of comments, but As Dan reads these first five verses, look for the theme and the word glory and watch how important that was
0: to Jesus. So we're in John 17, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began
1: this is the third prayer that we've covered of Jesus so far and they're very different from each other but there's one thing they all have in common and that is Jesus prays father (laughs) he uses the phrase father the Aramaic term daddy uh Abba which is an intimate word that small children would use of their fathers and that's that that's kind of unheard of in those days um he taught his disciples to pray our Father. But we don't really have records of individuals doing that. Jesus does that here. And it's, this is a rich passage, these first five verses. At some point, maybe we'll come back. Uh, at some point, we might teach all the way through the Gospel of John and, and see all the richness that is in these verses. But let me just summarize and say that God the Son, Jesus is eternally one with God the Father. He they always have been one and they existed in eternity past until the point when Jesus came to earth as a human being and took on the name Jesus. The son took on the name Jesus. So there was glory in the past. He lived and existed in a manner equal with God, and yet he gave some of that up to come to earth. Now, he didn't stop being God. He didn't give up his being, but he did give up his lifestyle or his functionality, his full independent use of all of those divine attributes, and so there, he, when he lived on the earth, he was human, and he got tired and weak, and it wasn't the same glory that he had before. And now he's praying that God will glorify him. This is not a selfish prayer at all. It's not like, oh, give me glory, give me glory, give me glory. Think about it. What was it going to take for God the Father to be glorified in God the Son? It was going to take the crucifixion. And Jesus knew that. He's almost there. And this is almost like a surrender prayer. He's saying, God, the, oh, Father, I'm ready. Glorify your son now. It's, it's very sacrificial, I think, for Jesus to pray this. Well, again, that sets the tone for his prayer. He, we, we're like we're listening in. But, but now I want us to focus on how Jesus prayed for his disciples, both those that lived then and all of us now. And we're going to look at a few ways. So um, uh, the first way is he prayed for their spiritual protection. Skip down to verses 11 to 16 and let's, let's read that together. Uh, John 17, 11 to
0: 16. I will remain in the world no longer... But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your power, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you, have, you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it.
1: I apologize. I'm used to reading and running the slides. I'm not used to hearing somebody else read and run the slide. Why would the followers of Jesus need spiritual protection? Why would Jesus pray this, Lord, protect our father, protect them? Won't everybody say, oh, it's great. You're, you're telling us that Jesus is Lord and we need to follow him. What can we do to help you? No, he knows that they're going to face opposition. He knows that the world opposed him and that when he leaves, the world is going to oppose them. In fact, he mentions two enemies. He had, there are two enemies here. One of them in, is in verse 14. It's the world. The world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And that word refers to the world system at this stage, the world system that is opposed to God. That's one of the enemies. And the other enemy is the devil, verse 15, the evil one. Um, They would see, you can see it highlighted there, protect them from the evil one. They would see firsthand what the devil could do because there were 12 of them and one of them, Judas, was inspired by the devil to betray Jesus. And Jesus would say to Peter, one of those disciples, when he was about to be betrayed and arrested, he would say, Simon, (laughs) uh, I want you to know that Satan has desired to sift all of you, but I've prayed for you. And then, of course, we know what happened. And Peter, after he was restored became a great leader for the church and wrote some of the Scripture, would actually write in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Jesus prays for them spiritual protection. How many of you need spiritual protection? <laughs> yeah. D.A. Carson makes an interesting observation. He says, the spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much of our time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, our family, and even our games than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. Jesus models a way for us to pray for others, and that's praying for spiritual protection. Second, he prayed for them to be set apart for God and his mission. That's what we find
0: in verses 17 to 19. Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. I think
1: the key here, and possibly the key to this entire prayer, is the meaning of this word sanctified. I wish, I wish we had a screen and I could just see what everybody thought of when you heard the word sanctified because it's a churchy kind of term, right? It's a religious kind of term. But it just simply means to be set apart for a special use. So, for instance, if I, like in my garage, um, I have a couple of rags that are sanctified rags. <laughs> they are set apart for a special use. I only use it, like if I'm checking my oil, there's, there's a rag that, you know, sits in a certain spot, and, I, I mean, I, that's the only thing I use it for. I wouldn't use it for anything else. If I decided I needed to check my oil and I couldn't find that rag and I went in the house and got one of the linen napkins off of the dining room table, how happy do you think my wife would be in that moment? No, that's a sanctified napkin. It's set apart for people's mouths and their faces, right? So when you set something apart, it's like, It has such a special use that you have to devote it to that and that alone. And I used to think that when Jesus was praying here, sanctify them, he was referring only or primarily to moral purity. That's what we tend to think of when we hear the word sanctify. But I think there's a lot more in view than that. God is holy, He is pure. He is set apart, and anything that is dedicated to God is holy or sanctified. In the original, these these words uh, are from the same, are very similar to each other. The noun holy means, in in the Bible, means something that's set apart for God. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, you had uh, people like Jeremiah, the prophet, that Uh, He was set apart before he was born. And God told Moses to anoint Aaron and his sons to consecrate them so they could be serving as priests or set apart them as priests. In the New Testament, broadly, you have both the overtones of this moral purity involved with sanctification as well as being set apart but in john it's interesting in john's usage, this word only appears one other time, and that 's in john ten thirty six where Jesus describes himself as the one whom the Father and here it is set apart at his very own as his very own and sent into the world so in other words, John thinks of being sanctified as being set apart to do a specific task. Now, watch how it goes here on your screen, verse 17. Jesus prays that God would sanctify the disciples, and we learn how it happens. It happens happens through the truth, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Integral to being sanctified. A servant of God is thinking his thoughts, allowing his truth to shape us, to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives. Now, the truth, Jesus is the living truth. He is the Word of God. And now we are fortunate to have the written Word of God, which is the truth that helps us be sanctified. So Jesus is praying that through the Word, through the truth, they will be set apart for God, reserved for God's services. But I think 17, 18, and 19 are connected. Apart from this background of the word sanctification, you might be reading along. You might read verse 17 and say, okay, he's praying for them to be sanctified. And now he's going to be praying for something else in 18, Right? See what it says there, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Wait a minute, now he's talking about something different. Or is he? (laughs) I I don't think so. Notice how Jesus pulls it all together in verse 19. See, in 17, you've got sanctification. In 18, you've got mission. And now, for them, I sanctify myself I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified now think about this in what way did Jesus Christ the perfect Son of God need to be sanctified was he not already holy wasn't he already holy and of course he was But I think what this is saying, Jesus is saying, I am setting myself apart for the use of God the Father. In this incarnation, in these 33 years, I have come to be set apart. I have come to do and be a specific thing. And that is ultimately to become the bearer of sin on the cross. I came with a mission in mind. We know what that mission was, right? The son of man came to seek and save who? The lost. Jesus says, I'm setting myself apart. I'm doing this, father. So they also can be sanctified. Now, I'm sure there are moral overtones involved in it. But I think the idea of being sanctified, being sent by God into the world is the primary point. Does this make sense? Again, sometimes we read the word sanctification and we don't think of it in these terms. And what an amazing thing that Jesus would do for us (laughs) to sanctify himself, to go all the way to the cross. Well, let's get a third thing. So he's, he's praying for them um, to be spiritually protected, and he's praying for them to be set apart for God. The third thing it, he prays is that, that they would be united. So uh, let's read, well, let's start with verse 20 and, and 21.
0: My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we'll do twenty two and twenty three in a minute. Our community group, like many of yours, are going through the 40 days of prayer um, during this season and Friday night. uh, The leader asked the question, what does unity look like? And just immediately, a couple people just jumped all over it and said it's being committed to a common goal or outcome. It's some sort of commitment to work together. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. He is not praying... When he talks about unity, that the disciples will think alike on every small issue. That's not unity necessarily. He's praying that they would all be committed to the truth of the gospel. That's unity. That they would be closely connected to each other, which we know happens from other passages through humility and selflessness, that solidifies unity. He is praying that they would commonly focus on the glory of God and his mission in the world. And that's furthered by unity. That is what he is praying for. Why is it important for believers to be united? Why does it matter that Christians are one? What will be the result? Look, look what it says there. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, think about why this is significant. We as Christians make an audacious claim that would be ridiculous if it weren't true. <laughs> and that claim is that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ and what he did. And many people in the world think it is a ridiculous claim. We claim that Jesus is not one of many ways, but he is the way, the truth. And the life. It is a stunning claim. And what he's praying here is that one of the ways that people will understand the truth and the reality of Jesus is when they see what he can do to unify people that are different from each other. Then the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's, let's read verse 22
0: and, and 23 now. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me.
1: Unity of the world is a witness. It's 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 a testimony. I, I'm. I don't want. I almost ask you to raise your hands. Almost. I don't want you to though, because I, I don't. I don't think I even want to see, see it. But unfortunately, how many of us know somebody, at least one person, who is not interested in God, not interested in Jesus because of a bad experience in church. They've seen people gossip or not get along or betray each other and do things and had bad experiences in the church. And you know the local church, the local body is where this takes shape. Now there's there's unity in all the body of Christ. It's one body of Christ, but the local body like our church is an expression a local expression of the body of Christ this is where it takes shape week after week month after month year after year we love each other we serve each other and our vision for the the church is not that we would just be a gathering place on sunday morning where you come in and, and attend a service and then you go out into your life all through the week without any interaction with each other. But through the week, you would continue to serve each other and love each other and know each other and pray for each other and serve together. That is unity. And that is um, fundamentally theologically accurate because God has made the church one. We find out in Ephesians and Paul Praise that we would maintain the unity that is already there. So the importance of loving each other and being united, it it helps us, it builds us up, but that's not all the benefit to it. Um, Part of the benefit is what it does for the lost world look what the result is the wor- then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me it's a great witness Think about a goal. Think about praying for other believers. Think about praying for our church. Think about praying for other churches that there will be such unity and love and oneness that unbelievers who are really looking for something, even whether they know it or not, will be drawn and they'll go, man, I I want that, right? Speaking of the church, as seen in this passage, Bruce Milne says that evangelism is a community act. It's not an individual act, it's a community act. He, said, he writes, the preacher is only the spokesperson of the community. The gospel proclaimed from the pulpit is either confirmed and hence immeasurably enhanced, or it is contradicted and hence Immeasurably weakened by the quality of the relationships in the pews. In this sense, every Christian is a witness. I think that's, a, that's worth thinking about. Well, there's one more thing that Jesus prayed for here. He prayed for them to grasp his glory and his love. So, Verse 24,
0: Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Just stay right there for a second. Let me just make
1: one comment on that and then we'll go into 25 and 26. Jesus longs for his followers to be perfected. That's going to happen in heaven. He's praying, Father, I want them to see this glory. And he knows that that is going to happen. They saw some glorious things while he was on earth, but not his full glory. And we see some glorious things now in the word of God, but not his full glory. This is going to happen when we end up in heaven. Verse 25.
0: Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Notice in verse
1: 26 what Jesus is going to continue doing for his followers. He's going to keep revealing God the Father to them So that they and we can experience the same love that God the Father has for the Son. So as as Jesus keeps revealing to the disciples the unity and love that exists between God the Father and God the Son, it's going to be experienced also by the disciples themselves. They're going to have Jesus present with them. It is astounding to me that the God of the universe includes us in his glory. He doesn't need any of us. We need him desperately, but God does not need any human being for him to be any more glorious than he is. And yet, he includes us in this. And Jesus is praying. Think about what Jesus is praying I want these followers, these disciples, these very disciples that are going to betray him and fail and argue with each other about who's the greatest and run away. He wants them to understand the glory. That he and the father experience and the love that God has for them. And he doesn't only pray it for them, he's praying it for all of us. We're in the section where he's moved beyond them. And he said in our memory verse for last, for starting today and through next week is that I'm not only praying for them, I'm praying for all that are going to come to believe in you. We do everything, of course. For the glory of God. But note that God has included the church in his glory. Sometimes people get nervous, like, oh, we don't want to have a man-centered gospel or a human-centered approach if we focus so much on on how much God loves people and this and that. It's all for the glory of God, but somehow in the glory of God, right here, He is including the church. Now think about this. Jesus sent his disciples on mission. That's what it was all about. That's why he walked with them for three years, to train them. He's about to leave. They're going to be without him, and he gives them clear instructions, but he does more than instruct them. He prays for them. He prays for them. Do you ever feel like the mission of making disciples of all nations or even of those people in your cul de sac is too daunting of a task for you? This prayer reminds us that we are not called to go do that mission in our own strength. This was Jesus' idea. And he is the one that prays for us in that mission. It's in intimate and vital oneness with God that we can carry out that mission. We can feel weak and we are weak. And I'm not just talking about Mr. Sinus here. We're weak spiritually, right? We're, We're weak to be able to really... Change the world and impact the world. Sometimes our motives get off track. Sometimes we're distracted. Sometimes we're afraid. But lift your heads up today, church. (laughs) Take your heads and your eyes off of you and your weaknesses and your uncertainties and your failures. And look back to our Savior who set the mission in, in place. And not only set the mission in place, but said, I am going to pray for you in that mission. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. Everything we do, all of our prayers, all of our proclamation, all of our acts of service began with and are empowered by this amazing prayer that Jesus offered up to God the Father as he presented us and the mission to God. So here's God's word for us this morning. Jesus prayed for us in our mission, and that gives us encouragement, power, and a model. It encourages me that Jesus prayed for us. It it gives power because there's power in his prayer and it also gives us a model of how we can pray for each other. Well, let's bring back our two dinner plates. I know some of you've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> the deep theological question for today is which plate reminds you the most of Jesus' prayer. Now, the plate on the right, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> is one meal, right? But it has different components. There's, uh, I guess that's roast beef and some potatoes with a little gravy on it and, and green beans. It's it's three different things, right? It's three different things. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I can't think of anybody into it right now. Nobody's coming to mind, but I feel like I've met people who Like when they go to eat, they eat all of one thing on their plate. And then, anybody like that or know anybody like that? Okay, some people are pointing. (laughs) It's different things, right? Now, the plate on the left, the spaghetti, it has different elements to it, for sure. I mean, there's pasta in there. You got the noodles. You got the sauce, the marinara sauce. You also have some, some meatballs in in that one, and there's a little bit of cheese in there. But I don't think of that as like three or four different things. I think of that as one thing. This is spaghetti, right? You you don't think, even the strength, I mean, the the, the unique people that like might eat one thing off a plate at a time, I don't think if they're eating spaghetti, I don't think they would like try to get the noodle out, wipe the sauce off, eat the noodle, then eat the sauce. And so, so the, the deep theological answer of the question that you've all been wondering about and probably wondered about all week long, the plate that most resembles John 17 is that one. And here's why I say that I was chatting with somebody this week or texting. He he was sharing things about this prayer that God was showing him and I I don't know if I thought it or I made the comment. That it's like there's so many different things here Jesus is praying for, but it's really all one thing he's praying for. It's like spaghetti. It's like spaghetti. I mean, he's yeah, he's praying for spiritual protection and, and he's he's praying that they'll be united, they'll understand God's love. But what and they'll be sanctified. But what, what, what's the one thing that brings it all together? These are people that are about to go out on mission for him. So he's praying this one thing for them, but it has different components. Does that make sense? Let, let me picture it this way, and maybe this will make it clear as well. So if we look at Jesus' prayer and we say, okay, he prays for protection, for them to be set apart, for them to have unity, for them to have glory and love, All of this is in the context of his being sent and their being sent. And by application, we would say our being sent, right? How does this affect us? Let's wrap it up so we can pray for each other. How does this passage affect our lives? Let me give you two really quick things. The first thing is I would encourage you to receive the glory and love of Jesus Christ. I don't know who's listening here in person or online. I don't know if some of you have never received Jesus personally, you've never really understood who he was, that he is equal with God the Father. And he bore our sin. He paid our price. He's not just a good religious leader and teacher. But he's actually the savior of the world. And he died to pay your sin. And he did it because he loved you and wants you to be saved. If you have never opened your heart to him, would you do that today? And believer, this is not just for unbelievers. Believer, those of you who already are believers as well, think about how much he included us and wanted us in his glory. The second thing is, as you pray for others, go beyond specific requests and pray for spiritual
0: realities.
1: This, This is where I think I want to grow the most in my own personal prayer life. It is fairly easy for me to pray for a specific request. It's not as typical for me to pray for spiritual realities. It it happens, but I want it to happen more. So for instance, let's think about the common prayer request that we have. Nothing wrong with these requests. We pray for people's health, for their job, for decisions. And actually, um, my bad, that we don't, grasping God's glory and love is supposed to be on the other column. (laughs) Um, PowerPoint does funky things sometimes, and it just decided it wanted, it just wanted to crawl over there on the wrong side. That's the wrong side, okay? The powerful things that we can pray for are spiritual protection and people to be set apart for God and his mission and for unity. And for them, to be able to grasp God's glory and love. So I just want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage all of us to do that. Yeah, let's keep praying about the common things. Of course we want to pray for those things. But maybe you don't know what to pray. Maybe you're going through the 40 days of prayer guide. And, and of course, we have sample prayers in there. But you see people, and maybe you don't know them well, and you're not sure how to pray for them. Pray these powerful things for them. And after the 40 days ends, and you don't have a guide every single day, pray these kind of things for them as well. I think this will be helpful. Well, let me wrap it up with this one quick story. 1908, James Fraser became a missionary to China. He was working in Lisu land in the foothills of the Himalayas. He traveled regularly from village to village evangelizing and baptizing and teaching the the service services with the new converts but but when the winter came the snow would come and it would he couldn't travel up into the highlands anymore he was stuck so he knew there was going to be about a three-month period that he was not he was working with people down at the foot of the mountains and he could still work with them but he couldn't for 3 months he wouldn't be able to see these people that some had become believers and started forming a church meeting together and he was frustrated about this cuz i'm not going to be able to see them i'm not going to be able to help them and then he thought he felt like the lord impressed on him to drive up there even if it wasn't snow to drive up there and meet with them and then to drive back it's going to take me about 5 days So he said, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take five days of my schedule and pray for all of those believers up in that area. And he did that. Well, a few months later, when the snow melts and springtime comes, he was anxious to go up there and see what would happen. He was wondering, man, have they gotten back into demon worship or what this and that and the other, but he found out through that winter They had been reading their Bibles and praying and growing more than they ever had before. Now, God uses our service for others. But God wants to use our prayers for others. Amen.
0: Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, HarvestCharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.